Inside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from a very, very snowy suburb of New York City and an equally snowy borough they call Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. What's up, brother? I'll tell you what's up, Andrew. The name on everybody's lips. Jizz Horncamp hmm. of Den Bosch. We're going to do a podcast today that's full of, of goals, transfer news, everything. But I had to begin with Jizz Horncamp. 3-0 down, Den Bosch, his club war against Excelsior at the weekend. A hopeless situation, tweeted our friends at ESPN Netherlands. But then there is the aforementioned Jizz Horncamp. 3-1 Horncamp. 3-2 Horncamp. 4-3 Horncamp. And then obviously Excelsior scored another goal. But no, wait, 86 minutes. 4-4 Horncamp. That's one way to start the podcast. Probably should move on. What a show we have for you coming up on this Disney-owned property. <laughs> Lots to discuss. Games over the weekend. Transfer deadline is, uh, is happened. Happening. Ending. Depending, I guess, when you've listened to this. Um, this should be fun. I'm, I'm also glad to see, JJ, that your, uh, your wounds have healed. It looks like you're uh, back to 100%. It is, it is. But the wounds you caused in the cycling community continue to rumble onwards. But we're going we're gonna to park that one, to use a traffic term. <laughs> I saw that I've, I've been labeled now as some sort of uh, bike-hating goon. Yeah, you, you have. And uh, although some people have taken it with, with, the, with the joviality it was intended with, and we've had some fun. So That's all. That's all nice. That's a shame. Um, what a snowstorm we had here. Of course, our sister podcast, This Week in Weather, is really pouring in the ratings right now. Uh, I mean, my God, I'm looking out my window right now. It's finally stopped snowing, but we probably, uh, what do you think, 20 inches? Uh, a foot and a half, yeah. almost two foot of snow. Wonderful. Absolutely gorgeous. I, I love the way that uh, Mother Nature can bring everything to a calming, well, not always calming, but to a stop and, uh, and make us realize there's something out there greater than us. The weather. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Although, man, my, men my, my mentality on snow has just completely changed from when I was a kid. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a if hassle it's not, to you. If it's, it's not a, a Friday night snowstorm, then I got no use for it. No. No, I, and I, I do understand that. It, it, it creates challenges. Um, but enough of weather talk. Mm -hmm. we, we have a great podcast ahead. We do. We do. Um, we're going to do another in the club coming up uh, shortly. Um, and it's we're heading to a league that we don't we don't awful often dabble in, JJ. Uh, yes, we're going to Scotland, Andrew. It, it, it is an ESPN league. Let's be honest. It's available on ESPN Plus. And there's just the reason we're going to Scotland. I know I promised Southampton, but I thought we'd go further north because there is a meltdown happening at one of the world's biggest clubs. Um, they have plucked. Uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. They're about to destroy a record. Celtic Football Club were about to go 10 seasons as champions. And now they're not. And in spectacular fashion. And we need to know what's going on up there. So we're getting Paul John Dykes from a Celtic state of mind, one of the best and award-winning podcasts about Celtic Football Club to explain to us what I think is one of the epic collapses of a major club in recent history. Uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that in a few minutes with, with Paul. And then uh, before the end of the podcast, of course, the U.S. men were in action the other night against the team whom shall not be named. 
also known as Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, 7-0 was the final there. So we will talk, of course, about some of that and some of the U.S. players that are uh, changing scenery, uh, which is becoming a a bit of an interesting storyline. So we'll get to that as well. But, JJ, we start with what you have termed to be the weekend in goals. I've decided to look at the week, some of the weekend's action in terms of the goals, the key goals that were scored and, and kind of broaden out the conversation from there. Use it as a device, Andrew, to go into conversations, broader conversations about the clubs because we're two days out from some of these games. Yeah, um, and there are games also happening. Like the, the fixture list, as we've said for, for months now, really is it's out of control. Manchester United are, are, have probably already even now played their midweek game by the time right. you're listening to this. So it's, it's insanity. Uh, but I know you wanted to start with a former MLS player in Jack Harrison who scored uh, a very nice counterattacking move against Leicester City in the 84th minute. Yeah, Andrew, is there a goal that sums up what Leeds United are about more than this goal? I don't think there is. Leicester didn't play bad in this game, but Leeds were much more efficient in the second half. They scored uh, two brilliant goals. It was, it was an end-to-end game. And Leeds just don't stop. They're defending a free kick. They break the full length of the field. They have two players, including one, the four. I don't talk enough about how good Stuart Dallas is as a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the next thing you know, the ball is breaking to Bamford, who, you know, selflessly finds Jack Harrison for the tap in. And it's 3-1. And Leeds deliver a very good performance um, against a top side, a team that's been you know, full of confidence the last few weeks. And uh, it just makes me wonder what's to come from this Leeds United team, but also made me ponder Leicester a little bit and maybe our expectations of them. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, the the question is kind of being posed now as to whether or not this Leicester season is going to wind up mirroring the previous one. Um, And I think as things stand right now, I would say, yes, I do believe that we're headed down that road. And by the way, for any Leicester City supporters that are listening to this, I think that's okay. Like, I don't think that Leicester City need to consider themselves a, you know, like a Manchester City level of, if we don't win a title this season, it was a bad season. Like, I think if Leicester City are at a level where they are consistently battling for a top four spot, I think that there's, there's nothing wrong with that. So I don't, I don't mean it in a demeaning way to say that I think this season is going to wind up mirroring last season. Uh, it's possible that they could still finish just out, just outside the top four, but I think the fact that they are still very much in that battle speaks to just Brendan Rodgers. It speaks to the players on that team, the consistency that they've kind of put together in all of this. Now- I, I just think, I just think, Andrew, not sorry to cut across you. Uh-huh. I agree with you in principle, but you think of two weeks ago. It's exactly two weeks since we were you know, waxing lyrical about, look at, look at Madison, look at James Madison in, in the post-match press conference, Le- you know, Leicester go top of the league, not like they were under any illusions that that would last very long in terms of just the topsy-turvy nature of the number one and two spots, but they were top of the league and we were talking in grander terms for this team. And now it just feels like they're slipping back into a situation where it's going to be a grim fight to hold on to fourth place. Now it may not be that grim, Results at the weekend would suggest that maybe they can keep a little cushion between them and the rest of the chasing pack for the top four. But it's not exactly, you know, it, you, you have to ask the question then, what happens next season? Like, wh- where is the club going? Another question for me is, um, Jamie Vardy, so crucial to what they do. The drop-off then to strikers after him is huge. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, they had the, the, the draw away at Goodison Park. Okay, maybe I can frame that as a good point against decent opposition. Fine. Um, but, you know, how have they not got something more tangible, something better in the striking position? You know, I, we always praise them about their transfers, the way they can do things with Fofana and then uh, laterally, sorry, excuse me, Fofana. And then before that was uh, Soyuncu. But, you know, striker, I don't know. There's, I, I just feel... Well, it, it depends what you it depends what you're asking Leicester City to be like. Right. For, for under normal circumstances, if I told you that Leicester City's backup attacking player was a combination of Kelechi Iheanacho and Iosi Perez, you might say, oh, like that's that's not bad for a Leicester City. But Leicester have kind of risen to a level where we now see them consistently among the top four. And so when you compare that sort of depth to the clubs around them, you can see like the drop-off then becomes that much more glaring. So I, I guess it's kind of what you're speaking to. It's like, well, you're right. What do they do next? Do they kick on and really pour money, not just into strengthening their starting 11, but yeah. to strengthening their depth? Because that's where it gets difficult for clubs that are sort of of Leicester's level financially. Yeah. And and also maybe, I, maybe I'm on, on the wave of the media. I mean, it was after beating Chelsea, who are a, you know, at that moment in time, a bad side. People got excited. People wanted to talk about Leicester. A lot of people were saying, what a great job Brendan Rodgers has done. And maybe I'm caught on that wave rather than looking at what where the club are. And in fact, it's probably a triumph for Leicester to be where they are right now, considering the size of the football club. Well, what they've done, I think, and I know that the faces have changed and, and managers have changed and, you know, they've had a little bit of an up and down since. But I think what they have done is they've, they've sort of proven that what they did in their title winning season was not necessarily just catching lightning in a bottle. No, they're well run. They're right. well managed. They have good systems for getting players in and um, they've made changes when they needed to. And and I suppose appointing Brendan Rogers was one of those. Yeah. And, and in terms of what I was talking about before about how, if this season is going to wind up mirroring the previous season, one of the reasons I say that is because what was the big thing we talked about near the end of last season when Leicester's drop off really started to occur it was the fact that injuries took hold. And like we're talking about now, their depth is not quite up to snuff with some of the clubs around them. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that again here. Castagna, Fofana, both suffered hamstring injuries against Leeds. On top of that, Vardy has already been out with a, with uh, dealing with a hernia. Wilfred mm-hmm. Ndidi, who some people say is actually their most important player. Um, and then depth players like Wes Morgan, Dennis Pratt. So uh, Brendan Rodgers has actually taken a pretty measured approach to this. He's not talking about this being any sort of excuse for, for a drop-off. He said it's just the nature of this season. If you look through all the squads, how compact the games are, the intensity of the games, it's very difficult for the players. So this is, I think he understands that this is a league-wide issue. But when you're Leicester and you're battling to win a title with City and Liverpool and the like, like it's, it's going to hurt you a little bit more than if you were just simply looking to maybe qualify for the Europa League and, and that would be your season. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be tough for them, but uh, all credit to them for remaining up in that, that top tier of the table. Uh, Before we, before we do move off of this, I did want to go back quickly to Jack Harrison who started this conversation, who scored the goal. Um, It's obviously first and foremost, it's nice to see an MLS import thriving the way he is in the premier league. Um, I saw he was uh, he was interviewed on the K Galazzo podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and mm. he spoke about the connection that he still feels with not just MLS, but with New York City specifically. Um, 
which I thought was kind of cool that he still has this attachment. He said that one of the, the biggest things that he misses JJ uh, not being in New York is the pizza. He said that there is not pizza like that outside of New York. Do you have, I know you're in Brooklyn, which is one of probably one of the pizza capitals of the world. Yes. You have a go-to. Um, I have to say that the, the pizza beside me, there's Joe's pizza of Park Slope beside me and then there's smiling pizza and they're just, their plain slice is you, whatever it is, the sauce or the cheese, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And you can't get that in Ireland or England. There's mm-hmm. maybe it's the bread. Maybe it's the dough. You can't get close to it. Um, a nice, a nice, you can get a nice, uh, plain, the white cheese, you know, the white slice, very nice, yeah. uh, right beside me, but. He's right. You cannot get pizza anywhere else in the world. Maybe, I mean, Italian pizza, the traditional pizza is different, but yeah, we we're so lucky here in New York with our pizza. So lucky. By the way, one last thing on Leeds. I, I kind of asked the question in the rundown, what to expect for Leeds for the second half of the season? More of the same. More. <laughs> I just think they'll be exactly the same. And um, they're going to, they're going to get beaten in some games. They're going to be so open but they're also going to put in performances like they did against Leeds. Um, and that is a question for future seasons. Uh, <laughs> how do they improve? How do they get better signings probably? But, uh, but for now, more of the same, I think. All right. Next up here, JJ, as our, uh, our quest for great goals from the weekend continues, we go to uh, the London Stadium where Liverpool had what I think has to be considered one of the goals of the season – Certainly the team goal of the season, and that yeah. was Mo Salah in the 68th minute against West Ham. And, and a goal for this season, uh, the, the breakaway goal. Low blocks are back, so when, once you draw a team out, you have to make it count. And it's a brilliant ball from Trent Alexander-Arnold. All the while, you can, if you listen to the LFC audio on LFC Twitter, you can hear Henderson shouting, go, go, because... It was one of the few occasions in the game that they got West Ham out of that low block. Um, brilliant ball from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Jordan Shakiri's pass then is from another planet. One times the pass, looping ball right into the path of, uh, of Mo Salah, who controls it with the right and then clips it in with the left. It, it was a truly breathtaking goal to watch. It was absolutely yeah. stunning. So um, the, the Shakiri portion of it is the one that is... <laughs> Mo, I mean, and look, Mo Salah, the touch that he took, his yes. first touch, we talk about first touches all the time. It's, it's the sign of how great you really are. It was, mm. I mean, it's as good as it gets. But the pass from Shakiri. so when he makes it, I will admit, I will fully admit my initial, he that. He my initial instinct was, what's he doing? Yeah. Like that was, uh, I think I might've even said it out loud. What's he doing? Like, because somebody once told me, and you obviously have more playing experience, so you can tell me if this is something that coaches have told you, but uh, something I once heard in soccer was if there's space in front of you, dribble into it or drive and, into the space. Yeah. Right. And, and he did have that. And it looked like he could have created a, a clear two on one had he driven into the space that was in front of him. And instead he just went for a one-time pass. The um, high percentage failure option is right. what he took. Exactly. <laughs> so I just instinctively, I saw it and I was like, huh, really? But it was perfect. It was just like one of the ultimate no, 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 no. Yes passes of the season and that was really what made the goal as great as it was yeah and then he comes off the field immediately afterwards it's yeah, like his last touch yeah and he gets a big he as the commentator said he is enveloped into the anorak of Jurgen Klopp disappears for a moment then re-emerges um, and, and his re-emergence is, has been big for Liverpool I think uh, particularly in this game 
And uh, we'll talk about transfers later, but Shakiri's going to see more time, I would imagine, over the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, back to Salah, Andrew. Mo Salah has now scored 90 Premier League goals. That's more than Dennis Bergkamp on 87, Eden Hazard on 85, Cristiano Ronaldo on 84, Eric Cantona on 70, and Luis Suarez on 69. That is, uh, that is just stunning. Absolutely stunning. I do have a trivia question for you. It's not full trivia, just one question, but it is based around that number of 90 trivia. goals for Salah. Right. Uh, he is now the fifth African player to tally 90 goals or more in the Premier League. Can you name the other four who are ahead of him? Ooh. Um, four ahead of him. 90 goals. Why am I making this so hard for myself? Well, we've got our we've got our Chelsea striker, our legend. Beware of the drog. So he DDA Drogba is number one on the list with 104. 104. Which, by the way, feels very very catchable <laughs> for for well, Salah right now. Yeah. Maybe by the end of the season. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's asking quite a lot. But and I'll say this: there's another guy on this list where that number feels very very catchable as well. Okay, go on, hit me. So Mo Salah has 90. Right. Sadio Mane has 91. Oh. So Salah and Mane are kind of locked in a little duel themselves. I was thinking uh, further back. Then Yakubu is next at 95. I, I, you could leave me there for two weeks and the yak would not come up. But Really? Yeah, it's, it's weird. I periodically remember. He's one of these players that comes into your mind every now and again. Yeah. Uh, and then Emmanuel Adebayor is next at 97. Wow. Um, and then Drogba. At one I, I wouldn't have got out of Bayor. I, I didn't think he reached those heights, but there we are. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Um, you asked a question, and I'm curious what your own answer to this question is. Presumably you have one, given that you asked it. Are Liverpool back? Um, at the weekend, it looked like for a large period of the first half that they were not, Andrew. The same problem breaking down the defense. If you There's, there's two moments which uh, you know kind of sum this up. The speed of play. They had a breakaway in the first half. West Ham finally go down the field and it comes to Divock Origi and he takes forever on the ball and the chance is missed. Mm -hmm. He could have played in two players, but he dallies. The break in the second half for the second Salah goal or even the first goal where Curtis Jones just runs at defenders, gets them out of position and scores the goal. That's Liverpool. And we haven't seen that. And in that sense, they're back. They've got a very difficult game on, on Wednesday night against Brighton and um, that will... I actually think that's a perfect game for Liverpool because Brighton are going to come out and play football and that will leave spaces. But yeah, I think they're back and it's a speed of play issue. And I saw things that I needed to see that I hadn't been seeing. You you have the game against Brighton. You have one after that uh, as I well, don't you? We're playing uh, Manchester Blues. Yeah. Yeah, I think that... Before I answer the question of whether or not Liverpool are back, you're going to delay until that game is I kind of want to wait to see. All right, okay. That's fair <laughs> Because enough. look, I mean... And we will talk about some of the transfers that have come in, Liverpool especially, who are kind yes. of being deemed as big winners with some of the late business that they did. However, we don't know if those new players will come in and acclimate right away to the Correct. Premier League. We do know what Van Dyke and Matip and Joe Gomez, to a certain extent, were giving Liverpool at that centre-back position. So that's with the way that Manchester City are clicking right now in attack, that's not a small thing. Uh, so... I kind of want to. I kind of want to wait and see. That's perfectly uh, just, fine. Just how vulnerable Liverpool are at that spot. But right now, what you can say is that they've got goals in them. They went through that stretch where they could not score, which was weird. Uh, 
and maybe now we're seeing that that was a blip and not necessarily who they are this season. Playing the like of Brighton and the like of City, which gives opportunities to be Liverpool, is much easier than the West Ham's, the Newcastle's of this world. Uh, and, and that's a fact. And that's not an excuse for Liverpool's poor play in those games. But um, speed of play is back, and that was crucial. Yeah, I don't have much on this. I'm curious if you do. That was a big game for West Ham. Yeah. Uh, they, they had like put themselves somewhat peripherally, but nevertheless in the top four conversation. David Moyes gaining steam. I mentioned him as a possible manager of the, of the season candidate. Uh, and this was kind of like everybody's starting to get on board, get on board, and then this game happened. And, and it was a bit of a reality check, no? A little bit, Andrew. I think... I think the main problem for West Ham was the criticism they got was they should have come out. They should have been more attacking. They, they, when, they, when they got the ball for periods, they had that chance with um, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the first half where they, they, sp- they whiz one past the post. Um, Andrew, they couldn't keep the ball long enough. You know, this is against the Liverpool team that dominated possession. And I don't think it was that West Ham were deliberately being negative. When you don't have the ball it's a natural thing to fall back into that kind of low block. Not that they don't play that under Moyes regularly anyway, but they didn't have the ball. They couldn't keep it long enough. That's just, that's a big part of it. Uh, They created a couple of chances, a couple of half chances in the first half. Um, I wouldn't be too hard on them. This is not the measure of West Ham's progress playing Liverpool. I I don't think so. Um, Next up here, JJ, um, over the weekend, Tottenham played. Right. Allegedly. And they were defeated by aforementioned Brighton. Yes. And it was horrifying. It was bad. Um, And we move on to our next game. No, 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 JJ. Of course, I'm here to take my beating. No, no, no. No, I don't want that. I don't. This is not about. No, um, it will be a a self-flagellation of sorts. I know. And and you love the flagellating of the self. I don't want that. I hate myself, yes. I know. I know. But I want you to take yourself out of self-loathing and Mm -hmm. just give me your just your feelings right now yep I, I want to know where you think this team is at um after a performance that was dubbed by a few observers as their worst since one day ramos um that's interesting because he was their last manager to win a title of or a trophy and it looks like Mourinho potentially with tottenham in, in the league cup final could be their yeah. next i don't know what that says but that's just interesting to me where i'm at so the first thing that i would say is obviously any Tottenham supporter right now with seeing recent results is in a, in a dark place um, with this team. The one thing that I think is important to point out, which happened a little bit last season when Harry Kane went out with the injury for several months. Um, you know, I, I talk all the time on this podcast about there being reasons and excuses for results. Um, that performance against Brighton, who I know you in particular have, have been very high on them this season, but let's just call it what it is. They're flirting with relegation. Yeah. And for however good they are, they've been really poor at home. Yes. That was, they were the, they're the last team in the country to win a home game. It's wild. Right. And so like, we can talk about reasons, reasons and excuses. I don't want to hear anyone saying, well, you didn't have Kane. All right. That is an excuse. That is not a reason. Uh, and even Regulon as well. Mm. As great as he's been this season, those two players in particular, those are excuses. Those are not reasons. Um, I saw, uh, I don't want to, I, I hate sometimes, even though we do it semi-often, I hate sometimes just sitting here and reading. Um, like we all gather around by the fire and Andrew reads a story. Um, but I, I saw a thread on Twitter that 
went viral among Tottenham supporters over the weekend. And the reason it caught my eye is because I think it really spoke to what is maybe a little bit more of a quiet majority of Tottenham fans. And by that, I mean fans who, like myself, for example, um, went into Mourinho with an attitude of, I'm, I'm going to be on board with this. We've tried this any number of ways. We've gotten, close. Me. We've gotten close to the top of the mountain, but we have not been able to break through. And this man has a winning pedigree. And so I'm not going to just go into this and, and hate it. I'm going to give this a chance. And Mourinho, to a certain extent, has validated some of that. I mean, like the Tottenham performances against Arsenal, Manchester City, uh, Southampton, Manchester United, like those did happen. Um, so like we can see that that what he wants to do can work. But the reason that this this Twitter thread kind of caught my eye and caught so many other people's eyes is because I think it's fair to be on board with the manager like I have been and also be looking at what's happening now and thinking, well, what are you doing here? What is actually going on here? I think you can be on board with a manager and question him at the same time. And so some of what was said, I thought was interesting. Uh, it, it came from at Spurs Web Seb. He's the chief writer of the Spurs Web online. He said, I never had a problem with Mourinho football when I understood where we were going. A solid bank of four, two holding mids, and the consistent ability to counter. That has vanished with a back five, and I really don't understand the game plan anymore. Mm. He goes on to say, I also got it when Mourinho called out people like Tangi and Dombele to get the best out of them. However, he has always offered them a route back in. So what has happened with Deli Alley? Where are his chances? He continues, Carlos Vinicius was brought in to be a Harry Kane backup. So let him be a backup. He looked decent in the second half as some kind of focal point to the attack. I can only assume that Bergwijn and Son would do better with the center forward to play off too. He continues some more. Tangi and Dombele is wasted in a midfield two when we play a back five because we don't get up the pitch enough. Play right. him at a number 10 unless the plan is to actually dominate possession. Otherwise, what is the point? That's not he, the plan. <laughs> and he concludes with, I get defending deep against the likes of Man City, but doing the same against rele relegation battlers just builds up their confidence and gives them a chance. We should be suffocating them from minute one. Um, it's hard to read this and disagree with it. Uh, Point by point, like the the four that Tottenham were playing in the back with Hoiberg and Sissoko kind of coming back and defending in those gaps, like that seemed to be working. Why they switched to a back five, I don't know. I don't know if he felt like certain players were dipping out of form, if the if the fixtures were coming too fast and furious and certain guys like Aldevereld, who had been one of Tottenham's best players for the portion of the season where they were thriving, if those guys needed a break, I don't I don't know. But I do know that what's happening right now is terrible. And this has become, from a league perspective, a lost season in a season where I don't know that it, it was that it needed to go that way. So that's unfortunate. Um, I can't pass full judgment on what's happened here because Tottenham are still alive and well in three other competitions. And you know, I, I'm not going to try to do goalpost moving now where for a decade, people have said, oh, good for Tottenham, but what have they won? Good for them, what have they won? Well, I'm not going to now sit here if they win a trophy and say, oh, yeah, but it's not the trophy we wanted. At this point, beggars can't be choosers. And if they do win a trophy, I'll be happy that Mourinho brought them to that point. Um, but like we've said, the league is number one priority, and the way it's gone has been deeply frustrating. And um, that's, that's essentially where I'm at right now with them. The XG philosophy, which is a good follow on Twitter, Tottenham total just 0.59 XG in their two matches this week. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think there was, uh, yeah, it was it was a worrying game, Andrew. I have nothing to add to that. I, I agree yeah. with so much. And, and look, teams can have rough patches. Like, yeah. look at Chelsea. Look at Liverpool, even. And they've now bounced out of theirs. Uh, so Tottenham are allowed to have one, too. But at a certain point, you, you if you're the manager, you kind of have to do something to jumpstart a scuttling team. And he's, whatever the buttons are that he's pushing, whether that be Bale, who I can't, look, I don't have a leg to stand on with Bale because I was somebody calling for him to be reintroduced to the squad. So, you know, I'll take the L on that if it turns ba- ba- out that he's Andrew, more than a super sub. Andrew Bay looked like he couldn't move. Right. So, the weekend. yeah. So if he's nothing more than a guy who can kind of be like a cup player for them uh, and a sub in, in league matches, then, then I'll say that I was wrong in wanting him reintroduced to the starting 11, especially with Kane out. Um, but like these other, maybe, maybe Deli Alley, who's not going out now on, on loan or being sold, he's going to stay there, which why, like, maybe he's the button that they can push. Maybe this guy has now been motivated to a point. I don't know, but whatever the button is that needs to be pushed, Mourinho is not finding it. Uh, and that it's become, it's become obviously frustrating. And uh, a problem in terms of creativity is that uh, Serge Aurier is now, well, yeah. We don't know where he is. We don't know what his status is, but it's not looking good. And um, he wasn't in the match day squad for the weekend's game. There was clearly something happened at halftime. It was some kind of altercation and he left the ground at halftime against Liverpool. So, yeah, not good. There we are. Uh, Just one one quick word on Brighton. Leandro Trossard, Alexis McAllister in particular, even Aaron Connolly, when he came in, although he had that horrifying miss where he put it just the one place that uh, Toby Alderweireld could block it. Um, Bright- Brighton have struggled this season. There's no question. But if you look at their games against big opposition and the way they play football, you look at the Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester United, and now Tottenham games, they're, they are a better side than their league position shows. And I think he's an excellent manager. They're, um, they're a great watch. They really are. Uh, one more here for you, JJ. If we're talking about goals from over the weekend, we have to go down to Spain, where, of course, the maestro Lionel Messi on the 20th minute against Athletic Bilbao, his 49th free kick goal and his 650th goal for Barcelona. And I've seen a goal like this before. This is not the first time that he's clipped one, not just over the wall, but over the defender who's either on the line or trying to get back and stop the ball going into the net. The, this is uh, what the commentator, the old school football man, the proper football man would say. He's put it in the postage stamp right in that one place. He is unbelievable. And I, I, because he's so good at everything, we often forget that his free kick prowess is up there with anybody. I think that point is is perfect. Yeah. like Because to compare him at least uh, – for a moment, obviously the Messi-Ronaldo comparison. Messi now has three more free kick goals than Ronaldo, despite playing 118 fewer games. That's across their club careers. Um, and, and, you know, I think about like exactly what you just described, because he's so good at so many things, we forget about how great he is at this one thing. Like I think about LeBron. Yeah. And like we talk about, oh, his passing ability, his playmaking ability, his court vision. And one thing that we don't say for him is that, oh, he's one of the greatest scorers ever. We say that about guys like Kevin Durant. Meanwhile, LeBron is third all-time in scoring and has an identical career scoring average to that of Kevin Durant. Like that to me is like Messi. Like he's he's an amazing playmaker. He's an he's amazing with the ball at his feet. He's amazing at generating a shot from nothing. And we just don't say, oh yeah, by the way, he's also one of the greatest we've ever seen at set pieces. 
but we'll sit here and talk about James Ward Prowse for like hours on end, <laughs> you know, but like that's messy. He's, you know, this is like, he's just as great or greater than whoever we think the other greatest current free kick taker is. We just like, it gets lost in the shuffle of all his great qualities. Yeah. Uh, the 20th minute against uh, athletic Bilbao for that goal, which was uh, yeah, it's, it's truly worth watching again, the accuracy on it. You could also, at the risk of, of pending litigation, I'm sure this podcast will now be uh, on the radar of lawyers in Spain. Messi's contract was made public. This yes, week. Um, ESPN reported what El Mundo already reported. So we're fine. We're fine with the lawyers. But uh, Barcelona have released a statement. They will be pursuing the source of this leak. Um, according to El Mundo, Messi would receive a maximum of 555 Wait, this I, I can't it's read so, this. This number is so bonkers over a four-year contract. Like, four-year contract. Hear it without laughing. Five hundred and fifty-five million two hundred thirty-seven thousand six hundred nineteen euros. That's six hundred seventy-three million dollars over four seasons. If a series of conditions were met, including image rights, the report explains that Messi was paid. 115 million euro renewal bonus just to renew the contract to sign it and a 77 million loyalty bonus split into two payments eye-watering <laughs> so i'm so caught between two minds with it because part of me wants to to look at that and i know that money cannot buy happiness but part of me looks at it and says like barcelona are paying him this He's got some nerve just like tearing into that club the way he kind of has over the last year. They have like the Messi family lineage is set through what, like the year 3000. But, but, but the other part of me is like, yeah, but, but he's also to a certain extent to, to the extent that anyone can actually be worth that. Uh, Cause I don't know if anyone can, but as much as anybody can be in, in sports, it's him. I mean, for whatever he's done for the club's global brand, their popularity, like God only knows. Okay. So they're going to pay him 555 million euros. What exactly do you think Barcelona's value has become since Messi has been this guy for them? Like right. the value of the club probably dwarfs whatever they're actually paying him as much as it is. So, you know, like, so I, I'm sort of, I kind of lean towards, yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous sum of money. Um, but He's kind of earned it. I, I think strategy-wise, though, Andrew, if you look at the recent figures released by Barcelona and how much they have no money and are in debt, the sensible thing to do was to cut ties with this guy in his 30s at that first point of asking so, so they could get the most amount, amount of money possible. Like, if, if, if it's just a purely financial thing, but it's clearly not, as you point out. Messi and Barcelona are now fused together forever, really regardless of what happens now. Um, but but from the pure financials, they needed to move on a while ago from this guy to get back maximum amount of money and, and plug a hole in their finances. Um, on the other side of things, uh, one-time Barca boy, Luis Suarez, Andrew, he got two goals against Cadiz, uh, but Atleti 10 points clear of Barcelona with a game in hand. He's now on 14 goals for the season. La Liga's top marksman. Talk about, I'll show you. Yeah. I mean, he showed all of us. We talked about his production. We talked about his running, his pressing stats, everything last season, said he was pretty much done. There was the move to Inter-Miami that was mooted. But uh, he's been unbelievable. And, of course, uh, to help things for Atleti at the top, Real Madrid lost to 2-1 to Levante. So, there we are. 
the the Suarez, what you just mentioned though, like the sliding doors moment of the the Inter Miami rumors. I mean, like Atletico Madrid are going to win the title. I think they're on pace for like a hundred points right now, and then mm. Barcelona and Real Madrid are on pace for somewhere around seventy six. So the room that Atletico Madrid now has for error, that in itself, they, they could still waltz to a title even with a, a drop in their play and an uptick in the play of of Madrid and Barcelona's. Um, and Suarez has been firmly at the center of it. And that's, that's incredible. Whether that's Simeone getting the best out of him or Suarez just going on this kind of like rampage of determination to prove that people were wrong about his demise. But um, Andrew, it, his motivations beyond his physical age, his motivations seem to be such a driving thing in his career. Look what happened after the ban for biting Ivanovic with, 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 when he was at Liverpool. And so that ban went into the 13-14 season. He also, that summer, had tried to negotiate a move to Arsenal, which he was denied. He was training with the reserves and the youth team. And then he gets back in. Steven Gerrard just said to him, prove to everybody, just stay here. And he just goes on this tear. And he was almost in a comfort zone at Barcelona and things had begun to slide. And then he's removed in a fashion that he absolutely hated and he felt he was terribly treated by Barcelona on his exit. And the next thing, that's the motivation he needs to drive on with Atletico. I'm obviously giving him motivations here. I'm obviously putting, he's a class player. But, you know, this guy needs the bit between his teeth. Hmm. Interesting choice of words. Uh, (laughs) It's also (laughs) totally accidental. It's also worth mentioning, uh, even beyond him, Atleti right now, they're scoring at a rate of 5.4 shots per goal. Deadly efficient. I think yeah. it's third or fourth best among Europe's top five leagues of any club. Uh, so, like, we always know how Simeone teams are going to defend, but they're they're scoring with a, a ruthlessness right now that has made them the best team in Spain. Uh, that is about it, JJ. We go from, uh, I guess, a team running away with it right now in La Liga to a team that was used to running away with it in the Scottish Premier League, and now they're watching another team run away with it uh, as Rangers have taken an absolute stranglehold of the Scottish Premier League. And the story of the season, though, has not as much been Rangers' success, rather this incredible and dramatic downfall from Celtic after winning nine consecutive titles and going for 10 straight. Uh, It has been, in a word, horrifying for them so far this season. Uh, And so let's go in the club now to kind of explore a little bit deeper as to uh, why they're in the state that they're in. Is there any getting out of this? Uh, Just where things are with Celtic. And to do that, we're joined by Paul John Dykes, the voice behind the award-winning A Celtic State of Mind podcast. He joins us now. Paul, what's up, man? How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking me to come on and chat. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. We appreciate you agreeing to, because I know uh, for Celtic supporters right now, these are these are not the glory days of the uh, the past decade. And I guess the thing that I wanted to start with here, um, in in talking about how great the seasons had been building up to this, were there signs that this bubble was going to burst, that these struggles were coming, or or has this caught even like the most pessimistic of supporters off guard? It's caught a lot of people off guard. I think what has happened over the last couple of years is there have been some warning signs. Uh, Now, we have a a fervent group of supporters called the Green Brigade, who I think are world-renowned. They went worldwide after their protest 
um, for Palestine and Roger Waters at Pink Floyd had it up on his stage, etc. But these guys are always ahead of the curve and they have been warning Celtic as a club uh, not to sleep at the wheel, not to become complacent. Uh, the 10 in a row is so important to Celtic fans. Mm. I think outside the Scottish football bubble, people may feel it's a bit parochial, but it's so important to Celtic fans. Did we see this happening? This level of capitulation, I don't think could even have been dreamed up by Rangers fans, never mind Celtic fans. But, but there have been some signs. Uh, when were the signs? I think a lot of Celtic fans were unhappy when Neil Lennon was given the job permanently. Uh, back in May 2019, that was really the first sign that the club had uh, their own strategy. They weren't going to try and, um, you know, go from Brennan Rodgers to another, that, that level of manager, uh, people say elite manager. Um, we went for Neil Lennon, who is a completely different style of manager. Um, so, you know, they thought that we could throw some money at it this season and we would win the league. Uh, it looks as though we're not going to win anything. Paul, uh, the detail of this collapse is is kind of interesting to me. So, I mean, just recently we had the the trip to Dubai in the middle of a pandemic, straight after a defeat in the Old Firm to Rangers. Celtic, even even when things weren't going well in Europe and they were winning domestically, you could always say they were a fairly well run club. How has it come to this level of inept decision making? That's a great question because obviously last week it was announced that Peter Lowell was retiring. So, you know, people were eulogi eulogising about the way that he had run the club. And let's be honest, in terms of financial, um, you know, strength, Celtic were, were run brilliantly. And he will always be deemed a powerhouse in financial management. Absolutely. Yeah. To be able to have the turnover and the profits that Celtic manage in a, a relatively small league, it's quite incredible. And the way that he's done that, uh, in part is due to the way that he, he worked or has worked in the past in the transfer market. So we were always able to find a nugget like Virgil van Dijk playing in Dutch football and sell him on at a massive profit. Now, the irony of that is we'd, we'd done uh, similar last week with Jeremy Frimpong. I mean, we brought the kid in for £300,000 from Man City, sold him from, for £11.5 million. Mm. But we kept doing that. We did it with Dembele, came in for half a million, sold him for £20 million. And we kept doing it. And Peter Lowell orchestrated that. Um, a, a very good negotiator. He was also very good at negotiating marketing deals. We became uh, a colossus in Scottish football. We were doing massive deals with Adidas, global brands, etc. But where we took the eye off the ball and where Peter Lowell has to take his uh, fair share of blame is that when we were recruiting players that had been identified, for example, by Brendan Rodgers, so even as far back as that, we were unable to get the deals done. So John McGinn was, was the big one. That was the one that made waves because he went down to English football and tore it up for Aston Villa. And if they were to sell him yesterday, it would have probably been for 50 million. We could have had him for three million pounds from Hibs. And we, we dilly-dallied on that deal. So criticism has been there for some time. There were others. You know, Brennan Rodgers wanted Castagne. He wanted Puccini at Celtic. He wanted to push the envelope take us to another level outside of domestic football. And then that's where the, the, the egos, I guess, of Brennan Rodgers and Peter Lowell started to clash. So in effect, we lost Brennan Rodgers 
you know, that was probably the first cut of what is finally unravelling this season. We lost Brendan Rodgers. We failed to replace him sufficiently. And we are now seeing the after effects of that. He was able to install at Celtic Park elite practices that he had learned at clubs such as Chelsea um, and Liverpool. And slowly but surely, the mentality, the structure, uh, the philosophy, the culture, uh, one could say, of Neil Lennon has dismantled what Brennan Rodgers put in place. And it's finally unravelling now. So it's taken a while, uh, but it's, it's happening it's spectacularly this season. I mean, the, the, the result on Saturday there, that was the first time St Mirren beat Celtic at Celtic Park for 31 years. That's how, that's how far we've, we've fallen this season. Well, I wanted to ask about that game specifically, uh, St Mirren. You know, sometimes you'll see in any sport, really, a team, a club with almost like a brand like the one that Celtic has. You know, even when they're struggling, they can kind of get by on their intimidation factor of their opponent alone. A team will maybe come in a little more tentative, uh, just knowing who they're playing against. And when you see that St. Mirren going to Celtic, winning for the first time in that number of years, is it fair to say that whatever sort of uh, intimidation factor that had once been there for Celtic has just completely evaporated? That's an excellent point. We're seeing teams like St. Mirren, and no disrespect to St. Mirren, and other teams like Livingston, even Hibs, they're coming to Celtic Park believing that they can win. Now, in the past, uh, with no complacency and no disrespect, we would expect to win these games and win these games fairly comfortably. But what you have there, to use St Mirren and Livingston as two examples, are two extremely well-organised sides with managers who have a game plan and they're motivational. You can actually see on the sidelines Jimmy Goodwin of St Mirren David Martindale of Livingston, talking their team through every single kick of the ball. And then you look at Neil Lennon, sitting, arms closed, looking clueless um, at his players who look clueless back at him. Mm. There seems to be absolutely no intensity, no tempo to their game. Interestingly enough, by 60 minutes, Celtic are done. Now, that never used to be Celtic. Historically, we were the fittest team we would always get last-minute goals when we needed them. You know, we were famous for that. This season, teams are scoring late goals against us. You know, a huge percentage, almost 40% of the goals we've conceded this season have been after the 70-minute mark. That's astonishing. So when you're looking at teams like St Mirren, they are now looking at Celtic. There is no intimidation. Now, some of that is down to the fact that they're not playing in front of 60,000 Celtic fans. I get that. But it's also because they can see the weaknesses, not only in the coaching staff, but in the, in the team. We're looking at a player in Odson Edward who looked every inch of the £30 million that was quoted for him um, a matter of months ago. If we sold him yesterday, we'd have been struggling to get £15 million for that player. So it's, it's actually you're swept through the confidence, not only of the players, but now of the supporters. Paul, um, I regularly tell our US listeners try to let them know the size of this football club. So if tomorrow morning everything was equal, there was no pandemic, and I announced there was going to be a Glasgow Celtic match in the Lincoln Financial Centre in Philadelphia, I'd fill it. I, I could put Celtic anywhere in North America. I'd fill the ground. It's not a yeah. problem. This club has huge global reach. But I look at some of the clubs that have advanced in Europe in the past 10, 15 years, your Salzburgs, your Leipzigs, whatever you may think of those models, um, 
even the teams that Celtic are getting knocked out to, they're like a Cluj. And, and you wonder where Celtic are in terms of structure. So getting rid of Neil Lennon and Chay, uh, won't, won't solve that. But also chasing this 10 in a row, was it, was it you, you spoke about parochialism. Was it the fact that Celtic got too parochial, focusing on 10 in a row, when really it should have been a larger kind of holistic restructuring of the club? Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we go further back, 2012, when Celtic fans looked at the situation at Ibrox, um, a lot of Celtic fans thought we're going to win nine in a row, 10 and beyond. Now, because of the way that the, the game is made up here in Scotland, you've got a derby which has all the normal rivalry, but you add into that the, the religious aspect of Celtic versus Rangers in any guise, and that takes it to a completely different level. So it's not just a fierce rivalry. It's not Everton versus Liverpool where an Everton fan can actually sit in a Liverpool end and it'll be fine. This yeah. is absolute hatred. It's hatred. So when Rangers, uh, you know, came into financial trouble and, you know, eventually were liquidated and everybody in Scottish football knew there would be a Phoenix club. We knew that because they had become an institution to so many people in Scotland that there was no way you know, these people could fill that void in their life. There was too much support for that football club and for that brand. But if you're Celtic, you're looking at that in 2012 and you think, well, Rangers um, as, a, as a Phoenix club are going to be allowed into the bottom league of Scottish football. So it's going to take four or five years for them even to play in the same division. Right. So you can basically say, well, there's five in a row straight away because no one, again, not being disrespectful to any other club in Scotland, no one can compete with Celtic financially. And that is down to the vast support that we have and the bargaining power of the likes of Peter Lowell to bring in a player from Dutch football for two and a half million and then sell him to the English League in Virgil van Dijk, who went on to become one of the best players in the world. And we did it time and time again. Mm. Victor Wanyama, Fraser Foster, you know, just recently with Jeremy Frimpong, Ki Sung Young. We, we were making here in Tierney 25 million pounds. So we became stronger and stronger. So you could have almost said five in a row was a given. Then Rangers come back into the league. They're not going to win the league in the first season. So the big changes happened across the city when Steven Gerrard came in. But that was three years ago. Now, they've been very patient with Steven Gerrard. There was times when Rangers fans wanted him removed from office. But Celtic became complacent because they focused entirely on 10 in a row. You're spot on. Mm. And what happened was we were looking at the European side of things even if you take it back to 2003, our last European final, when we got to the UEFA Cup final against Porto. And we had Martin O'Neill in charge, who at that time, his stock was at its very highest. You know, we'd managed to get him, even though Leeds United wanted him at the time. He was viewed as possibly a future Manchester United manager at that stage. And we got him when he was at the peak of his powers. And he wanted to progress in Europe. And there's a famous... Um, conversation he had with Dermot Desmond coming back from a game against Shakhtar Donetsk. Now at that time who had, the, who had the best European pedigree, who had the best heritage in European football between Celtic and Shakhtar Donetsk? Well, Celtic did. Mm. I mean, between 1964 and 1976 in those 12 seasons Celtic got to at least the quarter-final of European competition nine times in 12 seasons. So we had a real heritage and a tradition. But teams like Shakhtar Donetsk quickly overtook Celtic. 
and various other teams are continuing to do that. And that's because there hasn't been that European ambition. Now, Martin O'Neill was coming home that day and, and that night in the flight, and he asked for three players that would have cost Celtic in the region of 20 to £25 million back then because we had been beaten and beaten well against Shakhtar 3-0. And at that point, he tested the resolve of the Celtic power brokers and they were not up for taking it to the next level. So that has been the big issue even since Martin O'Neill's time. Paul, last one from me. You mentioned Rangers, and you know to look at the table right now is to is to kind of have your eyes bulge out of their, your head. It's, hor- it's horrifying. <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 point gap seventy two to forty nine from from Rangers to Celtic. It's jarring to see, and I, I guess what I wonder is, from a Celtic supporter perspective, is that being viewed? just as you know, a standalone, this is a weird season, the pandemic, no fans in the ground, or is there a little bit more worry in that, huh, maybe Rangers are about to embark on the kind of dominance that we've seen over the last decade or so? Again, yeah, absolutely. So many factors coming into that. And what I try and do is I look at the three nine in a rows in Scottish football. So Celtic did it in the 60s and 70s. Rangers did it in the 80s and 90s. And we are just about to complete our run because we're not going to win the league this season. And the most amount of titles that were won in between times by any one club was three in a row. Hmm. So there was domination by Rangers for three in a row, and then it would swing back to Celtic. And that was the, that was the maximum, if you like. Um, we are now looking at a situation where Rangers are going to win the league and they're going to win it well this season. Celtic's upheaval, as you've already said, um, doesn't start and end with replacing Neil Lennon. There's a structural change There's a recruitment uh, situation where we need to look and review the recruitment, the youth development, uh, the director of football uh, situation that may or may not arise. So we are looking at a situation where the upheaval Celtic are going into now might take a couple of years. It might take even three. When Neil Lennon is asked after every game that we haven't performed why this has happened this season, he uses a lot of mitigating circumstances, but that is all they are. You know, Celtic have been hit badly by covid by injury, by fans not being in the ground. But these are only mitigating circumstances. Rangers have shown the same type of forum that Celtic did domestically in the league under Brennan Rodgers in his first season. So even if we were at the top of our game this season, it would be neck and neck. But because Celtic have been so poor, the gap is wide. What I would like to say at this moment in time, and this is coming from someone who has supported Celtic uh, throughout his entire life, Rangers will win this league this season on merit and no one can take that away from them. Everything else is mitigating. Um, Celtic need to look within. They need to look at our own failings. Now that has been recruitment. It's been on the players. It's been on the coaching and the management and it's been on the the directorship of the club. Uh, The only people that I I can't find any blame with is the supporters. It's been a difficult time for us. We've paid for our season tickets knowing that we can't go to the games. It's difficult to influence anything um, remotely. So the only people that come out with this with any credit are the the support. The rest of them need to really look at their own part in the downfall this season. But Rangers will win the league on merit. The one thing that they might um, find after this season is that Steven Gerrard's stock has skyrocketed. He will be a wanted man. There will be clubs down south looking at what he's done up here and they'll be thinking he's our man to take over down south. Would it be a premiership club? I don't know. But you see the, the, the managerial merry-go-round down there. Um, he, his stock has risen uh, incredibly this season. 
Well, Paul, good stuff, man. I know it's these are bleak days right now for Celtic, but we appreciate you giving us some time and kind of breaking down why things are where the, uh, where they are at the time. A uh, Celtic state of mind is the podcast. Great stuff. It's a, it's an excellent listen. I saw you guys just had Mark Hughes on the show, so really, really cool. Uh, all the best. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Andrew, I thought that the enduring image of Glasgow Celtic over this period would be when Brendan Rodgers did the treble and he stood there on the pitch with the three trophies. And now it's going to be Neil Lennon and Scott Brown by a pool in Dubai, drinking 24 hours after losing to Rangers. So, so I'm, not, I'm not saying you're wrong, <laughs> but, but that also feels harsh to me that nine straight titles can almost be wiped away by one deplorable season and and, in, and specifically one semi-deplorable act, I guess. It's not that they did anything wrong or illegal. I mean, it was just, it was just such a go- bad optic. Oh yeah. More than that though. They had, they were admonished by the Scottish government. There was a back and forth with the, the uh, deputy first minister in Scotland over whether they should have gone at all and whether yeah. they had permission to go, but like read the room, don't right. go. They went because every season of the past few seasons where they've been iffy around Christmas and Rangers have looked strong. They've gone away. They've sunned themselves. They've trained and they've come back and they've been powerful and they've powered on to win the title. But this season, just read the room. Don't do it. Yeah. Uh, Just incredible optics. Everything about the club seems to be in a, a shambolic way, including Neil Lennon saying that maybe the players have got bored of winning. Don't say that either. No, because it's kind of your job <laughs> to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, that's a comment like that. Obviously, he's trying to indict the players and their motivations, but it's also a massive indictment on himself. Yeah. To say something like that. Wow. Um, let's see. A couple transfers, JJ, before we get to the U.S. men and close on that. And I guess the, the transfer window kind of provides a natural transition yes. between the two. Um, uh, well, there's, there's not a ton really to say about what happened in the tra- uh, this transfer window with regard specifically to the Premier League. We, we've talked about the Odegaard move. we talked about um, the uh, Mesut Ozil move. Arsenal, yeah. were, so, Arsenal were busy uh, as much as any club in bringing in Odegaard, but also, uh, like I said, sending out Ozil, sending out Mustafi. Socrates yeah. now permanently gone. Um, so they, they have been one of the busier sides. Yeah, they certainly have. Um, just a quick one on, on Arsenal, actually. Uh, the brilliant Swiss Ramble has a tweet out that people should should look at the thread. So after Mustafi leaves, he goes, Arsenal have finally moved on Mesut Ozil and uh, Schroeder and Mustafi via free transfers, which raises the question of how good the club's recruitment has been. Looking at this over a long period, we can, we can see that since 2010, they have lost, in cash terms, a cool £236 million sterling. That's very significant. And he makes the point then that some players recruited since 2010 are still at the club, which means that AFC have around 450 million of transfer cost in their squad, including Pepe at 72 million, Aubameyang at 57, Lacazette at 48, and Jack at 41 million pounds sterling. It is unlikely any of these will command such high fees as sold. So they're firmly in the negative over the past decade or so of of transfers. Not good. No, no, it's really not. Um, Look, there's still part of me, like Nicolas Pepe, even though Arsenal weren't great against Manchester United over the weekend, he wasn't bad. 
I thought there were flashes. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still part of me that, that does think signings like him can come good. Um, but you're right. The, in the bigger picture, um, it hasn't been. Now we can sit here and debate, you know, Obama Yang, it was an expensive move. He's been great at times. This season, of course, has not gone that way for him. And we'll see how the next couple of seasons go after he, he's renewed his contract. Um, but you're right. Overall, it's, I mean, it's largely why Arsenal, where are they, where they are currently and, and have been over the past couple of seasons. Uh, and then JJ, your thoughts on Liverpool. I know we mentioned a little bit, the two uh, new center backs that are coming in out of kind of out of desperation, but it's not like they just kind of went to the, the bargain bin here to find any two guys. These are two guys that could truly be helpful for them. Absolutely. Um, the news of, of Matip being out for the rest of the season with ankle ligaments clearly prompted them to move beyond just signing Ben Davis from Preston, um, which, look, I haven't seen pretty much of Preston this season, so I can't comment on, on this guy and, uh, and what he may be. Uh, but the signing of Ozan Kabak from Schalke, the Bundesliga experts say he was the rookie of the year in 1819 um, and that he's got serious talent and also a, a proficiency with playing long balls out of the back, which we know how important that was to Liverpool when Van Dijk was there. So it seems like a really good pickup and on a loan deal, which give them, gives them an option to sign. Seems like clever work again from, from the Liverpool hierarchy in terms of their signings. But again, I haven't watched Schalke since the summer. Um, there's a few people who have, have talked about how he's, he's got his weaknesses, but Schalke have been bad. So, I mean, when you don't have the ball a lot of the time and you're constantly under pressure, you're not going to look great. But like I said, haven't seen him, excited to see what he can do. Uh, real areas of need. A little bit disappointed that going the, the other way out of the club is uh, Takumi Minamino on loan to Southampton. There's no option to buy, so he's going to get games. So this could be good long-term for Liverpool. But I do think that it leaves us a little bit light. And for example, if an injury-prone player like Shakiri, who's become important over the last few weeks to Jurgen Klopp, suddenly gets an injury, maybe leaves a gap there. But... Um, well, had Minamino, had he fallen behind like an Oxlade Chamberlain or? Oh, yeah, definitely. So... He definitely had. I mean, Oxlade. Yeah, you're probably right. But again, um, I just felt Minamino didn't get enough of a run in the team, Andrew. Consistent run in the team. He was in and then he was all of a sudden out and he never got a chance to build that rhythm that he probably will at Southampton. Um, so I think it was Kieran Canning tweeted, well done to Minamino for realizing the best way to get playing for Liverpool is to join Southampton. Nice little bond between the two. Yes. Uh, and I also, I mentioned Deli Alley before. I just want to say on it that I found it such interest. It was so interesting to me that Tottenham ultimately decided to keep him because they couldn't, they couldn't bring in a replacement for him, <sighs> um, which begs the question, what exactly were you looking to replace? I, I he doesn't don't, play for you. I don't understand like, it. Clearly. And I'm not saying Deli Alley is a bad guy, but he's desperate to leave. He hates the current situation, which can you blame him? Um, so whether he's whether it's his fault or not, I'm sure just his being around the team has probably created a little bit of a toxic atmosphere, um, which is never helpful, especially when you're in a bad patch of form like they are. Just hearing this, this idea of we, we couldn't get rid of him because we don't have a replacement for him. It, it's like I've been trying to think of like, what is that like? Like if I had like a VCR that I obviously am not using anymore, just throw it away, get rid of it. But no, no, no. I can't throw away my VCR until I find a new VCR. This is uh, 
this is like that what are show you replacing this is like that show hoarders isn't it where oh, they yeah, have like right. you walk into a house and there's copies of the daily news from like 1985 piled up to the ceiling yeah um yeah uh, harry redknapp made an impassioned plea on uh, sky sports transfer center yesterday for delhi alley for for them to knock he basically said, knock their heads together, Mourinho. You got to play him. You got to play him. He's a fantastic player. Just, you know, get your head around it. Knock the two heads together. Like there's, like there's some, something, it all takes, all it, it's like a, a broken relationship. We got to get these two back together. They love each other. Just sit them down, you know, bowl of pasta and a few glasses of wine and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Very, very strange. Uh, and then I wanted to mention this kind of a window into uh, the U.S. and their 7-0 win over Trinidad. Um, a few American players are moving abroad, as has been the current trend. Props uh, above all else. Props to Paul Ariola, who has come off his torn ACL and in his um, his appearances for the U.S. men has really looked great. Yes, uh, he's he scored again. Uh, again, he looks bigger, doesn't he? He looks so not. I was gonna say his yeah. upper body is yeah. huge. That happens though. Uh, guys who have the long term ACL injury, they fill the time uh, hitting the gym, and he looks he doesn't look swole, kids, not swole, but he looks he looks bigger, he looks more muscular. Yeah, he, he really does. He'll be joining Jordan Morris at Swansea. Um, so good for him, man. Uh, he'll be there for the duration of the, the championship season. Um, Hopefully he gets minutes. I assume that he will. And hopefully he contributes. I and assume did, that he will. Yeah. And I think it makes sense because he's going to come back to DC United with games under his belt, hopefully uh, after a successful time with Swansea. Um, Daryl Dyke to Barnsley is an interesting one. And uh, Paul Tenorio makes a, just just a great point. He makes a lot of good points. You should follow him. But he says, smart business from Orlando. Dyke only misses a few games at tops. The option to buy isn't going to happen. But if Dyke goes well in the championship, it opens up more potential buyers. Importantly, going to the UK opens up UK buyers, which typically have more money to spend. It's like these loan signings are probably a byproduct of straight you know there's no money in the in the championship so financial times are dictating that in a way is working out for us players because you're getting some opportunities for our players to play and put themselves in the shop window at a higher level which is good yeah um also we should mention too i know we had previously said that brian reynolds was going to juventus look we pride ourselves on being your number one most trusted source for all transfer rumors it turns <laughs> out he's at roma we apologize. But your Romano didn't know where he was going right. half the time. Right. Uh, so we, we apologize for this. It will never happen again until the next time that it happens. Uh, but it's great for him. Uh, and I, I guess, JJ, what I'm trying to figure out here is this movement of American players, at what feels to me is a higher frequency from playing in, in MLS to going to play for teams in Europe. It, is that a figment of my imagination like, am I, am I just kind of forgetting that, you know, in the past we did have um, Maurice Adu in playing in Europe and Demarcus Beasley yeah. and Sasha Kleschen and, and uh, Andrew, like we've got more at the bigger clubs in Europe than we've ever had and more of a spread of players. There's just no question, you know, um, and they're not just bit part players, although some of them have just joined their club. So they're only integrating, but like it's way more than there used to be. Yeah. I think it was CBS did like a, a picture, a, a compilation composite picture of all the players and all the clubs where they were at. And the front row was just the guys at like Roma, Juventus, Borussia Dortmund, 
And then there was the guys behind them that are at clubs like maybe Schalke, Valencia. You know, we've never had this kind of spread of players. Not at, yeah. not at the highest level. We, we just don't. And, and especially to the, I, I think the way now, and, and I'm sure in some ways, Christian Pulisic is to me the trailblazer of what we're seeing right now, because I think we're seeing clubs in Europe trusting American players at a much younger age than what we had seen before. Like Brendan Aronson making a move to Europe. Um, you know, McKenzie, yeah. uh, these guys are, are very young. And I think now there's just a greater belief that these guys are, are more ready at an earlier age than whatever, you know, European clubs had thought of American players previously. So yeah, guys like Reyna, McKinney, Pulisic, they were trailblazers, I, I really believe in that and I way. Think, I think honestly, Andrew, technically the players were sending over what the coaching they're getting at their parent clubs and then at, at sorry at their youth rank level and then the coaching they're getting like at Philadelphia under Ar that Brendan Aronson got is of a higher level they're going over more ready technically and that's yeah. huge it is funny with Philadelphia to see the way that they have just gone all in on their own system where they routinely now year after year just trade away like every night it's draft night and you're just waiting uh, at the MLS draft like you're just waiting for the announcement that the union have dealt all of their picks which they do every year and yeah. they put out a statement basically saying we this is not our route we're not we don't care about this right uh, we are going to do it our way through our system and they uh, have and it's working for them it certainly they certainly have uh, as for the uh, the game itself, like I said, 7-0, it's hard to say a lot about this because Trinidad and Tobago, they really only took this game. Um, I, I know they talked a lot on the broadcast about, you know, wanting to give some of their players that haven't had a platform recently because of yeah. struggles within the country, um, give them at least somewhat of a platform to be able to play and maybe get seen by some other club. Um but like it was a Trinidad side that just like in terms of fitness, in terms of quality, uh, everything. Yeah, it, it was, you know, it's just you know, seven nil is probably what should have happened. Now, having said that, it was very fun to watch. Uh, it's encouraging that the American, essentially the C team can do that because we're not all that far removed from the U S playing against opponents that we'd be saying similar things about, you know, Oh, what do you, that, that team is that that's their D squad of, of a nation that we should be destroying the A squad. Yeah. And, and the U S would kind of get by like three nil and it wouldn't be great all the time. Like, so seven nil um, it's, it's good. It's very, it, you should be happy watching these guys play that way. Um, I think the most, the best thing that I took out of the game was, first of all, that Greg Berhalter's use of width, his players using the width like Herrera and Sam Vines getting down the outsides, that kind of, you could see what they've been doing in camp was translating onto the field. That's important. And then there was individual performances. I thought Sam, the aforementioned Sam Vines was excellent and his range of passing was, was very, very good. Um, from left back, Paul Ariola, we spoke about already. I thought Ferreira was 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 superb in his debut, and then Lewis, I thought, was a lively uh, presence throughout the game um, on that left side, coming inside uh, again. And Turner making the saves that he did uh, when he was called upon, which Save was rare. penalty. Yeah, that was good. Uh, that was good too. Uh, but I would take no more from it than that. I, I I felt sorry for 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 Trinidad. Not like I. It was good to see a win for the US, but. Um, Trinidad taking the game on, on kind of late notice and fitness was off positioning all over the place. And um, 
I really don't think Terry Fennick had long enough to to put this this side into any kind of shape to to play a team, even if it was our C team. Yeah, and on a personal note, um, I really enjoyed seeing Miles Robinson of Atlanta United FC. But I say a personal note because of Syracuse University scoring a nice diving header. Um, yes. So I thought that was cool. So yeah, overall, um, very good night. You don't want to see the U.S. give away a penalty, but like I said, Matt Turner saved it. Props to him. Uh, so yeah, this was fun um, watching the U.S. play like that. Uh, I guess we we still won't really know just where this team is at. We can we can certainly, you know, surmise and, and give our opinions on what we're seeing based on players who are thriving in Europe right now. But I guess I know sometimes we we talk it down a little bit, but I think the Gold Cup is really the next time that we'll get a true sense of the progress of where this team is. Hopefully guys are healthy for that tournament because I would think Bear Halter would that would be a tournament where he'll he'll give it a go with his guys, with with the true A team. So I'll be curious about that. Um, also, in the post game, I thought Maurice Adu made a, a really good point when they were kind of talking about who the big winners were on the night. And he said mm-hmm. that Jason Kreiss was a, a big winner um, as he prepares the under-23s for Olympic qualification because there were a lot of guys out there that he would be interested in. For sure. For that team that, that really played well. And like we keep saying, I think that that tournament, assuming the Olympics do happen this year, uh, is I think it's, it's very important. So, uh, Andrew, you, we may call this the C team as well, but there's a lot of games coming up for the U.S. men's national team between Olympic qualification, World Cup qualification. There's also a lot of games happening, period, because of the, the world we're living in right now and the pandemic. It is possible that some of these guys are going to be needed in qualifying. Definitely. That is a fact. And we think we have all these players right now. It only takes loss of form, a few injuries, or some players missing to cause problems. Yep. Um, absolutely. Uh, the U.S., they're unbeaten in their last seven matches, six wins, one draws. They're outscoring their opponents 28-3 to three in that time. So we're starting to, uh, starting to see it. We're starting to work our way back. And like I said, I guess uh, the Gold Cup will, will get the truer sense. Um, but right now, this team is fun to watch. Young players, likable team. Like the manager, too. I know people kind of weren't sure at first of Greg Berhalter, but there's no reason yet to be skeptical. He's, he's done a good job. Um, so all good. All good. Can I now. cram in two things before we get out? Sure. Very quickly. Uh, Andre Villas-Boas has offered his resignation as manager of Marseille because they signed someone. Olivier Nicham from Celtic. He said, I've resigned because I don't... This was at a press conference. I've resigned because I don't agree with the sporting policy of the club. I said no to the signing of Olivier Nicham. He wasn't on our list. Even for the exit of Nemanja Radonic, I was told at the last moment, I don't want anything from the club. I don't want their money. I just want to leave. If the answer is no, we'll keep on going. (laughs) I love the club and I love Marseille, but you can't touch my professionalism. When I'm offered a guy who has nothing to do with the profile I'm looking for, no, I do not agree with the sporting policy. Uh, and the supporters have taken to the streets. Well, they'd been doing that prior to even any statements from him. They're ninth at the moment. Um, they have less games played, I think, than the teams ahead of them. But it's not been a good season after a decent season uh, last season. And, and they finished bottom of the group in, in Champions League qualification or Champions League group stages. Um, yeah. yeah, there were there were violent scenes a few days ago at the Marseille training ground. Um, it, I don't know. It's not it's not pretty right now. No, what a bizarre list of comments from uh, Andre Villas Boas. Yeah, so there you go, my friend. Oof. That is a meaty pod. Certainly was. And it's another week of, of midweek action. Games are, are already happening by the time you're listening to this. Uh, and then uh, I know on Thursday, Tottenham and Chelsea um, should be a, an interesting one. And then, of course, over the weekend, JJ, we will be uh, obviously next week on the podcast, we'll be analyzing what happens with Liverpool and Manchester City. 
because uh, it feels like that game could have the ability to alter the complexion of how we see the season. So Indeed. big stuff. Big stuff. Well, good uh, by stuff, the way, my friend. Yeah. When this podcast comes out, when the link comes out on Twitter, hit it a very hard retweet with your thumb. Don't damage your phone, but as many retweets as possible. Let's get that out there. Yeah. And also, well, um, I, I have, I got to go check again, but I would love more of uh, reviews of, but in your review, including shows that you suggest, because I finished Cobra Kai. Right. Uh, I, I hate that I finished it. And I can't believe I have to wait a year now for season four. I <laughs> absolutely loved it. I can't say, I can't say enough good things about it. A lot of people recommended that on the loved reviews. It. Yeah, such a, so fun. And I'm glad that I went back and watched Karate Kid 1, Karate Kid 2. I'm just, I'm like so in now on karate. Jack's taking karate lessons. And like during, right now, because of the pandemic, they're kind of doing them remotely over Zoom. Oh, and God. so he's kind of like, there's not an instructor here. They're, they're on the camera, but at certain points they need, you know, somebody has to come in and kind of be like the assistant um, with your your kid and so i like can't wait i'm like sitting next to the computer and, and i like as soon as they say okay will the assistant now pop up I, I spring to life this is my time to shine right right uh yeah. so no I, cobra kai I, I really really enjoyed it well hey this was fun man good stuff enjoy the games during the week uh you and i i'm sure will be in touch throughout the week as we always are to you i say check you later phone boy see ya take care man Side Soccer Podcast.